0: Good morning everybody, Good morning. morning. thank you Richard, thank you Ryan, good morning, Uh, lovely to be here, it's a few weeks since I've I've, uh, preached here for various reasons, been on the road a little bit more than than normal uh, at other places and with some of our friends who are coming and speaking as well, so it's actually I think four weeks since I last preached here, but with John being on sabbatical I'm going to be around a little bit more over the next few weeks, so Actually, uh, planning to be here for the next, preach the next three Sundays, uh, but then um, doing the double thing, so shooting off each week after I've spoken down to 502. So once I've finished this morning, I'll be heading down the road to speak at 502 as well. Well, we're starting a, a new series today, and it, uh, amongst the big pile of paper you received when you came in, you'd also have got one of these little booklets, Who Am I?, which gives an outline for the series. This is to be used for, in, in live groups in a week, but also for you personally to use in your own diversion devotional times during the week over these next five weeks as we look at this series of Who Am I? We just finished a series called Who is Jesus? And uh, the series Who is Jesus and Who Am I? Those are two questions that are intrinsically linked because I believe that you can only really answer the question Who Am I? when you understand who Jesus is. So we've spent a number of weeks thinking about who Jesus is. We're now going to see how that applies to who we are. And uh, We're going to talk about this theme of identity, this theme of of self, our sense of who we are, how we understand ourselves, how we uh, uh, perceive ourselves to be. And uh, we're shaped by different things. We're shaped by people, and we're shaped by places, and we're shaped by events that give us our sense of identity, our our sense of self. Um, I've had a a few weeks of uh, kind of a few reminiscences. A week before last, I was up in London midweek for a, a gathering of some guys we were working some stuff through together and uh, uh, stayed with some friends in southeast London near where I used to live and in the morning went for a, a run-up to Blackheath and, and Greenwich Park. Hadn't been there since just a couple of days before we moved down here. There's Susie and Georgie, nine and a half years ago, just a day or two before we moved down to Paul. <laughs> How cute were they then? <laughs> what on earth happened? <laughs> they got think They got oh, thank God, better. Well. So, uh, uh, Greenwich Park was a significant place, we would often go there whenever we had friends coming. For 13 years we lived in London, whenever we had friends from overseas especially come, we'd always take them up to this viewpoint, Greenwich Park, we see across London. And, and I was part of a, a, an athletics club and we'd train in Black, on Blackheath during the winter, and we'd train in Greenwich Park in the summer, so every week I was up in Greenwich Park. And I hadn't been there for nine and a half years, and it was a strange experience to go and stand there again and think about all that's happened. And, Part of my identity has actually been formed by that particular place because I spent a lot of time there and had some significant moments there. And then last weekend, Grace and I were up in Newcastle. We were spending a weekend at Cornerstone Church in Newcastle. And uh, this is where we went to university. We met at university. We fell in love at Newcastle University. Ah, There it is. uh, It's cold up up north. Um, (laughs) There's 25 years since we last went to Newcastle. Absolutely amazing, but it was, it was it was wonderful to kind of walk around the city again and to see some familiar things and see the changes. But part of our identity obviously is deeply affected by the fact that by this by that place. I Haven't been there for twenty five years, but if it wasn't for that place, if it wasn't for that city, if it wasn't for that university, we wouldn't have met. The whole everything would be different. My identity has been shaped by that place and by the people it involved. Uh, Nancy was sixteen on Wednesday. I think. Yeah, three daughters in my house now old enough to get married legally. Um, I've been shaped by Nancy in many ways, which have been painful, but <laughs> nonetheless, we're we're working it through together. But you're, you're shaped by you're shaped by the people in your life, and the places that you've been, and the events. The significant moments of your life these things define the kind of person who you are but the, the thing we want to talk about in this series is actually the even more definitive thing is being shaped by the gospel of jesus christ that that is even more definitive in finding our identity we, we talk about the bible talks about being born again That there is this transformation which happens to us when we come to jesus uh, 2 corinthians five seventeen, which is a key verse for this series if anyone is in christ he is a new creation The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Who are you? If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. We talk about being saved. That means you're changed. You're in Christ. You've been transformed. You you are different. Something happens to you, which is uh, not just a a, a decision of lifestyle or different way of thinking about the world, but is definitive. Who am I? I'm in Christ. I've been changed by him. I'm a new creation. And in this series, we want to think about what it means to live in the light of that, to to live up to the truth, the objective, the real truth, that you come to Christ and you become a new creation. So this is a series which is for those of us who know Jesus, who know that we have been transformed by him, who know what it is to be ransomed, saved by him, who know what it is to be born again by him, who know what it is to be new creations, that we might live in a way which lives up to that, Uh, But it's also for those of you who don't yet know Christ in that way, because hopefully this series will help unpack for you what we mean by the gospel, what we mean about the work of Jesus Christ, what these terms mean, what these things mean. Hopefully, you'll you'll see something of our experience, which will help you to understand more of what we believe, as well. And it's such an important issue: getting your sense of identity right. This question of who am I? It's a vital question. I know that when I in counseling situations with people who are struggling with different things in their lives. Maybe it's a lack of assurance of salvation, or maybe it's a lack of joy in God, or maybe it's some kind of controlling habit they can't seem to shake off. Again and again, the root issue is actually this question of identity. Who are you? Who do you understand yourself to be? If you're in Christ, what does that mean? How does that play out? How does that empower you? This is an essential question for us. I want us to live in our freedom, to live in our new identity of being those who are new creations in Christ Jesus. So we're going to be looking at five kind of pairs of something that we were and something that we become. And uh, this is actually a a kind of a a way of describing this, which my friend Brian Barr from Houston, Texas, uh, uses in his church. And we have borrowed it from him and I thought it was really helpful, so we're going to adopt it here as well. And the the first pairing is from idolaters to worshippers. First thing is that we were idolaters. Let's turn to the book of Romans. It should appear on the screen behind me as well. Romans chapter 1. Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome and he says this. Romans 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ouch. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Double ouch. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Ouch. 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 This uh, passage describes an exchange that the human race has turned from God and turned towards idolatry, that rather than worship the creator, we have turned and we worship creation. And it's an offensive passage. It is a passage which has that sense of ouch about it because of the way in which Paul describes the human race being described as futile in our thinking and darkened, being described as foolish and having exchanged what is good for what is base—those are uh, uh, that's a painful diagnosis. It's a kind of an offensive message, but I believe it's an accurate diagnosis of the human condition. It describes how we are, what we're like, what we've done, why the world is as it is, and it could be—it's a, a difficult passage for us to kind of say amen to because. Well, firstly, because we can read it and think, well, yeah, I can see what Paul's saying, but my experience, actually, most of the people I know uh, are actually pretty nice people. Um, They don't always appear particularly foolish and darkened. They're pretty, the people I know, the people I work with, my friends, my neighbours, they're pretty nice people. And also, idolatry just isn't obvious to us. If you're living in a different culture where there are idol temples full of idol statues, idolatry is very obvious. And in our culture, we don't have... We don't really have that, and so we, we might kind of we might feel the the ouch of the passage, but might not feel its full relevance and resonance in our lives. But Paul's diagnosis is clear, and his diagnosis is accurate, and it's this: that we human beings were made to worship. We were that's what we were made for. We were made to be worshippers, but we worship wrong. We worship the wrong things. There's just something about us, human beings, that, about our hearts, that the human heart is always looking for something to love and for something to be loved by. That's, that's, that's what we're, we're always looking for, that because we are made to worship, and love is an expression of worship, worship is an expression of love. We're, we're always looking for something which our heart can love, lean towards, and we're looking for something to love us. And that's because... We want to be fulfilled and we want to be happy. And the only way that we can be fulfilled and the only way that we can be happy is by having something to love and by being loved by something else, which is an expression of worship. We, we can't escape it. We are made to be worshippers. We want to love, we want to be loved, we want to be fulfilled, we want to be happy. So we have to worship. but. In our foolishness, we've turned away from God and try to find our fulfillment and our happiness, our love, in other things. And uh, this love, actually what often happens is that rather than our love being expressed towards God, our worship towards Him, our, our love gets turned in upon ourselves. And, and we try and find the answer to the longings of our hearts in ourselves. We try and find, the, try and find salvation in us. Uh, Grace and I witnessed uh, an example of this, which might not be entirely obvious at first, but let me tease it out. The other day, we, we stopped to get some petrol, and there was just a short line to get, just a loose line rather than queue for the sake of our American friend. Uh, There's a short line um, waiting at the pumps. And uh, you know what happens? There's a double pump system in the front car left, so there was a gap with a car behind it at the other pump, and somebody from this, there's, a, there's a, a few seconds, nothing happened, and then the guy who was waiting next in line in the left-hand line, he thought he'd go across and fill the gap. And then the guy who was just in front of me in this line, he took great offense to that, and as soon as he saw that, he zoomed out, went in, rammed his car up behind the other car, got out and started haranguing the, the driver, He'd taken my place. He wasn't actually going to go for the place but somebody else had taken a place he thought he could have taken perhaps if he'd thought about it and so his anger was stirred up and he got out and he rang the guy and in the end the guy who got to the place first, he just threw his hands in the air got back in the car and left the petrol station. And uh, actually that's an example of, of worship because what the guy was demonstrating was it was self-love. It was how am I going to be fulfilled? How am I going to be happy? It's going to be proving my point. It's by justifying my case. It's by me asserting myself. It's by me being number one. It's by me coming out top in this position. Actually, a situation in which nobody needed to come out on top. It was just a short cue for some petrol. But it was a reflection of his self-centered, self-directed love, which actually led to quite an ugly and unnecessary scene. It's a reflection of what we do all the time now our idolatries might not always look like that kind of ugly and obviously self-centered self-righteous but all of us have things that we love all of us have things that we trust in all of us have things that we serve and we do that because we were made to be worshipers We have to worship. Humans are a one set category. We all come in the set of worshippers. Everybody does. You just have to because we're looking for love. We're looking for fulfillment. We're looking for happiness. We have to. And we all worship something. And some of the things which we worship actually, in themselves, are good things. Some of them are bad. Some of them are good. But we know that worship is the way to our fulfillment and happiness. And so we're always looking for worship. We. We want to be loved, and we want to love. I was uh, on Friday, I went to pick Ryan up from Heathrow, and she uh, took a long time to come through because they were questioning him for hours about how Donald Trump ended up as President of the United States. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at immigration. And, and, uh, and I was waiting, and, and um, I actually quite enjoyed being at an airport, watching people come through as they come through the, the arrival's door. You know, the doors open, and they come through into that kind of funnel. And I, I, like, I like people watching, and I like standing there and, and trying to work out what kind of person are you, where, where have you come from, and what kind of a person are you like, and what kind of business are you engaged in. And you try and guess by the clothes that people are wearing, and the, and the stuff they're carrying, and the, how many suitcases they have, and, and it's just interesting to observe people and try and work out their stories at that fleeting moment. Uh, but the other really fascinating thing is that all, so many people are coming out looking for someone they love, and there's that thing which we humans do, and how it happens, I'm not quite sure, but, you know, when someone sees somebody they love, there is that change in the eyes. It is the light that comes on. And you see all these tired passengers, slightly anxious, frazzled, coming off a long-haul flights from around the world into Heathrow, coming through the doors, scanning the crowd. It's a big crowd, you know, it's chaotic, there's lots of people around. And then suddenly their eyes set on the person they know and love, and the light comes on. We, we're looking for love. We're looking to love. That's our identity as human beings. Our identity as worshippers. We have to worship. But, says Paul, Romans 1, if we're not worshipping God, if we're not worshipping the creator rather than the created, we're fools. Because our worship is idolatry. And idol worship always leads to disappointment because... Nothing is capable of bearing the weight of our needs and desires except the Creator, except God Himself. All those other things, those other people, ourselves, that we put our hope in, put our trust in, serve, look for fulfillment in, seek to love, seek to be loved by. No one and nothing can bear the weight of our desires, of our needs, other than the one who created us. And so if we worship idols, we'll always be disappointed. There'll always come a point when we're let down. there would always be a point when the whole thing collapse, collapses under the burdens of the weight of our desire. The only one who can handle it is God himself. And we were all idolaters, says Paul, because in our folly we turned away from worship as it should be directed and we put our trust in idols, which will always disappoint, always let us down. Second thing is that Jesus changes everything. This is the shortest point, although it's the most important one. Jesus changes everything. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Hallelujah. You turn in faith to Jesus, you come to him, and you get a new identity. Who are you? You're a new creation. You're found in Christ. You're united with him. And this means that all our loves get reoriented. It's like going to spiritual physiotherapy. You know that uh, those of you who know me know that sometimes I've struggled with a, a bad back, tend to get muscle spasms, and sometimes go to the physio. When it gets really bad, I go to the physio to sort it out. When it gets bad enough to actually pay forty quid to fix it. it, has to be really bad for that uh, go. And. And the physio is able to realign all those muscles down my spine, get the spasms out, get things out. And the thing is, if your if back spasmed up, it doesn't matter how well any other part of your body is working. You can't use your arms, you can't use your neck, you can't use your legs as you would because of the, that muscle spasm in the back just controls everything. And, and when that's realigned, as it should be, suddenly everything else can work as well. And when we come to Jesus, when we get our new identity in him, when we're clothed in him, it's like spiritual physiotherapy. Everything is getting lined up as it should, and now our, our loves get reordered as they should as well. It means that we are actually enabled to step into greater love. So, Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives. How? As Christ loves the church. Husbands can't love their wives as Christ loved the church unless they're clothed in the new identity of Christ. That's a a measure of love which is impossible for us humanly to attain. That that sacrificial measure of love, we can't do in our own strength, but by the grace of God and your new identity in Christ, you can. Because in Christ, you're empowered to love more. Our idols say to us, you've got to love me, you've got to love me. You can't worship God because you've got to love me, you've got to trust me. Actually, you come to God, you get your new identity in Christ. You realize you're a new creation. You're freed to come to the place which you're meant to be, which is enjoying God. It enables, the the whole love thing grows. It reorders your love, so it enables you to be more loving. enables you to express delight in things which are delightful to a degree you couldn't previously do because everything's oriented as it should be. Jesus changes everything. It's the shortest point. Hold on to it. It's the most important one. Third thing, we do still experience a pull of our old identity. If you are a Christian, you are a new creation, but our old loves, our old idols, have a tendency to keep calling us back. And the the prime biblical example of this is the story of the people of Israel when they left Egypt. It's that familiar and essential story of the story of the Exodus. That God, by Moses, leads his people out of Pharaoh's power across the sea towards the promised land. They're they're released from slavery and brought into freedom. But again and again, they look back to the place of slavery and they feel the tug of it, the pull of it. And again and again, they actually say, we wish we were back there. We'd rather be slaves in Egypt again than free out here. And that's how idols operate. And Pharaoh can be any number of things. Pharaoh can be things that you love and would say, You have to keep loving me and you've got to love me in this way. And if you love God like that, you won't be able to love me like this and that will be disastrous. Or Pharaoh can be something that you fear, just as the Egyptians, as the Israelites feared Pharaoh. It can be something that controls you through fear and you feel you have to serve and continue to serve in order to escape fear. Objectively, the Israelites were free from Pharaoh, but he said to them, I want you back. And they kept feeling the pull of Pharaoh and of Egypt. All kinds of things can do this. It's very obvious ones. Addictions do that. I want you back. I want you back. A career can do this. Got to give it all for the job. Got to sacrifice everything for the career. Positive things can do it as well. Your children can do it. Make idols. so easy to make idols of our children. And the thing is, we can, sometimes we can be very aware of what our idols are. It's obvious if it's an addiction. Sometimes they're much more subtle and we can actually be blind to them. Uh, Tim Keller, the New York pastor, says, Jesus warns people far more about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of it, of greed. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. What Tim Keller is saying there is that greed is a problem. Greed actually is an idol for so many people in our culture. But none of us think we're greedy, which there's a sign actually that probably could be an, an issue for us. Well, think we, our Id- we can be blind to our idols. And so we need to be self-aware. These little idols who seek to get control, power over us, Direct our worship towards them. What is yours? What is yours? It's a difficult question to ask because it does require some honesty, it requires some soul-searching, and because it touches things we don't want to be touched. Because the very nature of an idol is it says, don't touch, worship from a distance, but leave me alone. What is, what is your little idol? What is the thing in your heart which tends to establish itself, which is to say, serve me, worship me, this is how you'll find your fulfillment? This is how you'll find love. It might be an obviously bad thing. It might be something which actually looks good. It's easier to spot if it's obviously bad. It's much harder. It's much harder to admit if it's something which is looking good. It might even be something which other people commend you for. That's a really good thing in your life. That's great what you've done there. That's amazing what you've established there. They, even those things can become idols, and those idols say, don't you dare touch me. I mean, how, can, how could loving your kids ever be wrong? How could that be an idol? Well, it's not wrong to love your kids, of course not, but it is wrong if your love for your kids is disordered, if that's actually what your whole life is built around. This is why in one of the hardest sayings that Jesus ever said, Jesus said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my, dis- be my disciple. Now, what was Jesus saying there in that extraordinary statement? Of course, he's not actually saying you have to hate your wife, your daughter, your father, your mother. What he's saying is, he's talking about the cost of discipleship. He's talking about how, actually, if you're to get things ordered the right way, there's such a priority in terms of recognizing the supremacy, the firstness of God, that everything else, even your wife, even your kids, even your mother, your father, become secondary things to you. And as long as they remain primary, well, you can never be a full disciple of Jesus Christ. Things are always going to be confused. Things are always going to be messy. Those things can't bear the weight of your desires and needs. And when our old identity pulls at us, when idolatry pulls at us, we've, we, you have to call its bluff. You have to recognize, actually, its lack of power. Because when Pharaoh said, I want the Israelites back, actually he had no power over them. It looked like he did. He looked like he was the regional superpower with all the resources, with all the army, with all the military, with all the might. But actually, because of God's hold upon the people of Israel, Pharaoh had no power over them. Had to call his bluff. Think of another Old Testament example, the story of, of Gideon. Gideon, a scared little guy who God calls one day and says to go and destroy an idle altar, the altar of Baal, and Gideon does it in the night in fear that he's going to be found out and pay a terrible price, and in the morning the town wakes up and says, who's destroyed Baal's altar? And somebody wise stands up and says, well, let Baal contend for Baal. If actually Baal's got any power, let him sort it out. Calling Baal's bluff, of course, Baal had no power. But our idols would say to us, I'm powerful. If you, if you don't honor me, if you don't worship me, if you don't trust me, if you don't serve me, then everything is going to end in disaster for you. And we have to call the bluff of our idols. We have to see that Christ is greater. We have to see that Christ is greater in value. He's more precious. He's more worthy than anything else. We have to see the greater desirability of Jesus. That actually knowing Christ and being known by him is the great treasure. It is the pearl of great price. It is the most precious thing. It is the best thing you can do. It's the best thing you can know. To know Christ. Nothing is more desirable. Nothing is more precious. Nothing is more wonderful than that. And we've got to see the greater power of Jesus Christ as well. That he is more powerful than our addictions. He is more powerful than our habits. He is more powerful for those things that we cling to. He's more powerful. He has all power. He's more powerful than Pharaoh. He's more powerful than Baal. And when we love Him, all our other loves are reordered, so we can love so much better. And you know, the thing is, if you go back to your old identity, if you live in your old identity rather than your new identity, that's going to produce some fruit in your life. It's, it, It will result in the end in you essentially being self-centered because that's what idolatry does. It always turns you in on yourself, just like that guy in that petrol station. Maybe not as visibly as that, but always like that, actually internally, emotionally. It turns you in on yourself rather than out towards God and out towards others. It means that you will lack assurance. You won't feel the assurance of faith. You won't know the certainty of God's favor and blessing in your life and his hand upon you and his, 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 his plan for you. You'll lack that assurance. And and, and you'll lack joy. You can lack joy as a a Christian. Being a believer is meant to be a life which is an experience of joy in God. But if you're not putting God first, if you're still going back to your old identity, if you're serving your old idols, you lose joy. You just do. And you'll also end up just confused. Who am I? I don't really know. So final thing. What does... What does being a worshipper look like a step into our new identity as worshippers. what does that what does that look like well it means so many things i'll just give you a few examples one thing it means it does mean singing i mean this is obvious stuff basic but it's, it's profound it means singing uh, it's so good to have ryan here with us for a couple of weeks so ryan's here for two and a half weeks he's leading here today and finally two next sunday and here again the week after and doing lots of stuff with us in between And, uh, you know, the gift of song, it is a gift. We don't just gather and sing because that's what Christians traditionally do. But the reason that we gather and sing actually is because when Christians gather together, the Spirit of God is present amongst us, and the Spirit of God stirs up worship, which has to result in singing at some point. It always does. Because singing is this amazing gift that God has given the human race, to enable us to express things which we just can't express in other ways. We express thoughts and emotions, feelings in song, in a way which is just different from other forms of human communication. There is something amazing about music. And so part of our worship has to be singing. Worship is to sing, it is to come before God with the people of God and sing songs of praise to God. That's what it is to be a worshipper. If you're a worshipper and you never sing, something is very odd. When we gather together on a sunday we sing when your own on your own sing sing songs of praise to jesus it's what we do the spirit of god works in us and releases songs of praise to him singing is an obvious response of worship but worship encompasses so much else besides worship encompasses all we do it encompasses all our working colossians three seventeen. whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. In all that you do, worship. Now that, um, that's such a helpful verse when it comes to our work. Because it has this double impact upon how we view work. It, the first thing it does is it dignifies your work. So if, you, if you're working in what essentially is an uninspiring, or perhaps a downright kind of scummy job, There's a dignity which is still yours in your new identity in Christ. Because why? You do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through everything. Even this uninspiring, scummy job, you do that to the glory of God, giving thanks to God through Jesus Christ. It gives a dignity to what you're doing. It gives a dignity to you because your new identity as a worshiper is you've stepped into dignity in God. The other thing it does is put work in its proper place. So the other end of the spectrum, the job which is all, which is all-consuming, all-dominating, which so easily becomes that idol in your life, actually it puts it in its proper place because that, that job isn't the end in itself. Actually, you're, work, you're doing that in the end ultimately as an act of worship to Jesus. So it, it both dignifies and it puts in its proper place what it means to be a worshipper, that all we do is done to the glory of God. Everything is done with thankfulness. Being a worshipper also affects our thinking. Romans one twenty-one, Paul says that our thinking has become futile. Further on in the book of Romans, Romans 12.2, Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your minds so you can know what is good and acceptable and perfect, so you can worship There's this contrast that our old identity of idolaters is that our thinking is futile. Our new identity of worshippers, our thinking is transformed. To be a worshiper is to have your thoughts directed towards God. Actually, it also means where do our thoughts tend to go? It means that our being a worshiper means that our thoughts are inclined towards what is pure rather than what is impure. It means our thoughts are inclined towards thinking about how we can better serve and connect the body of Christ rather than just serving and ourselves. It means our thoughts are directed towards Jesus and not just me. Our minds get reordered as we step into our new identity. Being a worshiper means praying. That's conscious, deliberate connection with God that we deliberately step in our new identity into this place where we say, Jesus, I believe that you're real. I believe that you hear me. I believe your spirit's at work through me. I believe that when I pray, I have a father. I've got a good, good father. It's a good, good father who hears my prayers and by the power of his spirit is able to work even through these feeble words and things happen. It means being a worshiper means Listening. That we have an expectation of hearing God speak to us in every situation. Worship is a two-way process because it's a process of love. We worship because we love and we want to be loved. And loved and being loved means listening. And so worshipers expect to hear God speaking to us. Worship means giving. It means bringing out offerings before God of Time and energy and money and possessions. They, we gladly hand them over to God. We entrust them to God. We entrust our lives to God. We say, Lord, it's all yours. It's an act of worship. And being a worshiper means righteousness, peace and joy. Romans 14:17. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, <laughs> peace and joy. That Our new identity means we step into this. That we step into a place where we know that we are considered righteous, clean, welcome before God. It means... That we step into this place of peace. Idolatry causes anxiety. Stepping into the presence of God, being a worshiper, means a sense of peace. Oh, God loves me. He holds me secure. My Father is good to me. Jesus died in my place. He's carried my sin. His Spirit empowers me and fills me. And that means joy. Idolatry never leads to joy in the end. But our new identities identity as worshipers brings us into joy in the presence of God. Because Who are you? You were made to be a worshiper. And when you worship Jesus, you are doing what you were meant to do. That is where you are most yourself. It's where you can be most complete, most fulfilled. It's what you're made to do. It's the way of wisdom. It's the way of life. It's the way of joy. Hallelujah. I'm no longer an idolater. By the grace of God, I've become a worshiper. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord. Let's worship him. Ryan, come up and help us.